Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm Jack Baca, and I'm happy to welcome you to this segment of our walk through the New Testament book of Revelation this fall at the Village Church. This is the fifth lesson for the week of October 11th, as we are looking at the sixth and seventh chapters of the book of Revelation. We remember, of course, that Revelation was written by John as he was exiled on the Roman prison colony of Patmos. It is a vision that John has from Jesus Christ. It is a vision to the church of the late first century as it faced uh, persecution and suffering at the hands of the Roman Empire and a hostile culture that did not understand and did not accept the message about Jesus. So today we continue our study through Revelation, as always also remembering that Revelation is written from a particular literary style and perspective using apocalyptic imagery and speaking of eschatological times, the end times. Apocalyptic imagery uses fantastic visions and, and visually rich details to express deep theological truth. And of course, we remember that it always said something to the first people who heard it. Revelation was not meant to be a prediction of what would happen two or three thousand years in history, as much as it was meant to be an expression of deep theological truth, deep belief and understanding of what God was doing with all of history. In that sense, Revelation is about the future, but not in specific terms, only in general terms. And so with this next section of Revelation, uh, we begin to see the opening of the seals, the seals that are in the scroll that is unable to be opened, the scroll that is meant to reveal to us how everything will turn out in the end of history. Only Jesus Christ the sacrificial lamb of God who has become the triumphant Messiah and victor of God. Only Christ is able to open these seals, and now the seals are going to be opened. We are seeing here something that is very typical in Revelation, also something typical in eschatological and apocalyptic thought, and actually throughout all of Scripture, the idea of seven. Seven was understood to be a complete number. There were seven days of creation, as you remember. And so as the seven seals are opened, we see, John is saying, a complete picture, a whole picture of what God is doing in the cataclysmic events that will now happen as a result of, in a sense, the end of history. So let's look in detail at some of these particular sections. First of all, the first eight verses of chapter 6. This is, in a sense, the beginning of the end. We've had a picture so far in Revelation of, of the victorious Christ, of the church, of what's going on in the heavens, and what's going to then go on on earth because of what's going on in the heavens. God is going to bring his plan for all of creation to its appointed end, to its appointed purpose. That's one of the affirmations of Revelation. We need not worry about how things are going because God is in control. Now, as things happen, we will see the seals open, there will be war, there will be plague, there will be death, and all of it comes at the hands of what has become a very famous symbol of Revelation, the four horsemen 
of the apocalypse. You might have heard that phrase before, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Each horseman, as the seal is revealed, each horseman portrays the judgment of God on the human arrogance that exists in the world, on the rebellion of the world against God, especially in this late first century as it is manifested in the power and might and the activity of the Roman Empire. So in verse 2, we see a, a white horse that appears. There is an archer on the white horse. Now, for first century people, that would remind them of the Parthian people. The Parthians were the only people of the first century uh, who mounted their archers. They were the only ones who did that. So as soon as you mention an archer on a horse, people's minds immediately would go to the Parthians. Now, interestingly, the Parthians were the only people that the Roman Empire never conquered. Isn't that fascinating? What John seems to be saying here is that as the rider on the white horse is unleashed into the world, that's a, a signal of the beginning of the end of the Roman Empire. Even the mighty Roman Empire that had conquered and subjugated so much of the world at that point had its limit, and it met that limit in the Parthian Empire. This is what's signified by the white horse. Then with verses 3 and 4, we have the red horse. The red horse uh, is, comes and there is no longer any peace in the world. You might have heard another phrase referred to before, the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. You see, part of the success of the Roman Empire is that because of the imposition of authority, of power, of law and order, so to speak, because of the power of the empire, there was a version of peace in the Roman Empire for a long time. Peace that was bought at the price of violence, to be sure, but still it was a form of peace. Now the red horse comes and there will be no more peace in the Roman Empire. Then with verses 5 and 6, the black horse arrives. The black horse brings famine, food rationing, if you will. There's literal discussion of how much it will cost uh, in terms of a day's wages for, for how much basic food supplies. This means to say that there will be food rationing, that there will be famine and starvation in the land. The prices that John mentions here are eight to 16 times above the normal prices, inflation, if you will, of that time. Wine and oil will be at the same price, which seems to be John's backhanded way of saying that the very rich who can afford wine and oil will continue to be wealthy. It's everybody else, all the normal people whose food, their basic food of grain uh, will become expensive. So that's a way of saying that there will be famine in the land. And then verses 7 and 8, we have the pale green horse. Why do we say pale green? Well, if you think about pale green, you think of something that maybe is sort of ghostly in appearance. We're coming up to Halloween, you'll see lots of pale green sort of luminescent, uh, somewhat transparent things around, right? That's how we think of ghosts, if you will. This pale green horse indeed brings death. Death in many violent forms, not the peaceful death at the end of a long life, but death in violent forms. 
Now, these four horsemen of the apocalypse, the basis of this imagery comes from Zechariah chapters 1 and 6. Remember, at the beginning we said that so much of what's in Revelation, almost all of it in fact, really is taken from the Old Testament. John is seeing all these great theological truths in images and forms that were well known to the established church, those especially who had come from out of the Jewish tradition. These four horsemen represent the power of evil. They are saying that evil becomes self-destructive. It sort of implodes on itself. But even as that happens, God is accomplishing his purposes in history. You notice that the four horsemen are allowed by the power of God to come into the world. In a sense, it's, it's as if God gives permission for evil to destroy itself. Let's continue on, verses 9 through 11 of chapter 6. This is the fifth seal that is opened, and here we see the Christian martyrs in heaven. The Christian martyrs in heaven who uh, represent all of those that, that have been martyred and, and prefiguring, in a sense, the immediate future, those who will be martyred. We see them as if they've been sacrificed on an altar, and in fact... That's what John is saying. Just as Jesus was sacrificed, Christian martyrs have been sacrificed. Their sacrifice, as with Jesus' sacrifice, accomplishes something. Their sacrifice is a testimony. It's a witness to God's judgment and redemption. This is, this is a way of giving strength giving courage to those who are facing the literal sacrifice of their own bodies, saying that in their sacrifice, they are pointing to something that God has done in Jesus, the victorious Messiah, a sacrifice that accomplishes the salvation of the world. John sees the martyrs who already are in heaven, and he sees the value and the purpose of their sacrifice giving a, a way of looking at what has happened to those who have already been killed and, and to those who perhaps soon will be. Then with verses 12 through 17 of chapter 6, we see the sixth seal opened. And as the sixth seal is opened, the focus shifts from what's going on in the world of humanity, famine and death and, and no more peace. We see all of those things going on. When the sixth seal opens, this implosion, if you will, or explosion, it expands to include the whole cosmos, the whole universe. There's earthquake and, 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 and fire and, and flood, catastrophe where even the very earth and the moon and the stars are shaking and they're not in their places. This is a way of saying that, that the consummation of God's plan is meant for the whole of creation. The very cosmos itself seems to be shaking and falling apart, not just human life, but, but everything around us, kind of like a, a huge earthquake. We're familiar with those in Southern California, right? No one can escape this destruction of the cosmos. Where are you going to go to escape the shaking and crumbling of the very foundations of the earth? You cannot go anywhere to escape. And yet, at the very end of this section, at the end of verse 17, John asked the question, who will stand 
Well, nobody can stand in the midst of the, the very shattering of the earth itself, except when John asks that question, we know that he has an answer in mind. Who will stand? Well, they will stand, those who are protected by the power of the one who made that cosmos. The creator who created and the creator who recreates has the power to pull the cosmos back together, if you will. The power to protect, to defend, to keep standing those who are with him. Again, a message of strength, a message of encouragement, a message of the proclamation of the power of God to redeem his whole creation. Then with verses 1 through 8 in chapter 7, as we move into chapter 7, we see that uh, in what we might expect with the seventh seal being opened up, that's not what happens, right? We've had the first through the sixth seals open, so we expect the seventh seal to be opened up, but there's, there's something else that happens here. Next week, we'll look at the opening of the seventh seal. But now we see at the end of these six seals, when everything is falling apart, John gives us a vision of the church. Fascinating thing. John describes the church in two very distinct ways. And as he focuses on the church, he is wanting us to focus on the existence of the church, the fact of the church. The church, of course, being God's people. John is writing for God's people. The vision that Jesus gives to John, remember, is a vision for the churches. Initially, those seven churches that are discussed in the second and third chapters of Revelation, Ephesus and Sardis and Laodicea, all of those. And by seven, again, we're meant to understand the whole church. Well, now God, uh, John shows us, through the vision Jesus gives him, a picture of what the whole church is like, what it's about, its essential character, its role, uh, and its reason for existence, if you will. So, what is what the church, what, what is it like uh, that, that we see here? Well, in the first eight verses of chapter 7, we see what has been described as the church militant. You might have heard that. Uh, that phrase as well, if you will, the church militant. The second half of the chapter will talk about the church triumphant, militant and triumphant. Well, what is the church militant? Here we see in this vision the church as it continues to exist on earth. Okay, these are the people who are still alive, the people of the church in John's day who are living through all of these terrible things that have been unleashed on the earth. The, the crumbling of the Roman Empire, the death, the destruction, the famine, the end of peace, all of those things. The church is going to live through those things. That's the church uh, that stands up against the destruction of all things, the church that withstands the destruction of all things, the church that remains on the earth as an unshakable witness to the presence and power of God the Father and God the Son. Notice that this church is sealed. The members of this church are sealed by God. Later on, we'll hear about the seal or the stamp of the evil one, the 666 on the forehead. Well, here is God's seal on the church, a more powerful seal, an everlasting seal, right? 
We say that uh, here. We see here in, in Revelation that there will be a hundred forty-four thousand who will remain. Now, some people have taken that number literally, but you can't do that, right? A hundred forty-four thousand. One hundred forty-four thousand is twelve thousand times twelve thousand. In the first century, the largest number that was ever discussed or conceived was one thousand. If you wanted to say that something was beyond a thousand, you wouldn't say you wouldn't say a million. You wouldn't say a billion or a trillion. Those concepts hadn't been developed yet. You would say many times a thousand, like the psalm that says God has ten thousand cattle, right on the hills, or or the cattle on ten thousand hills. I think is the way it's said. Here we have twelve thousand times twelve thousand. Where do we see the number 12? We see it all through the scripture, the 12 tribes of Israel. And indeed, they're named right here, right? What John is saying is that the whole church, the whole people of God, a huge number, really a number almost beyond imagination, that number will be preserved. That number will be protected. The whole church is going to survive. The church that stands up almost in a militant fashion right? That stands up against the destruction of the world. So don't, don't get wound up with trying to figure out if you are one of the literally 144,000. That's a pretty small number by today's standards, right? Where we have seven and a half billion people on the planet and over a billion of them are Christians, right? What this means to say is that God is going to preserve his church and the church as it lives in the first century, as it continues to live, stands up as a sign of God's power and God's plan. Then with verses 9 through 17, as we finish chapter 7, we have the other half of this vision of the church. Not the church militant that lives on the planet, but the church triumphant. This is the church that exists in heaven with God. These are the saints who have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. The saints who have their white robes as a sign of purity, as a sign of, of conquering. These triumphant saints no longer suffer. They're not hungry anymore. They're not thirsty anymore. They do not suffer the heat of, of the sun anymore. They do not grieve or cry anymore. Everything is perfect bliss. At the center of this church is the Lamb. We've already encountered the Lamb. The Lamb of God, the weakest creature in all creation, who in fact is also the Lion of God. Remember from last week? The Lamb who is the Lion, the Lion who is the Lamb, God who conquers all things through the power of his sacrifice, through the power of his love. It is that Lamb, the Christ, the Messiah, Jesus who is at the center of the triumphant church and also alive and present with the militant church. And so here we see another picture of strength, uh, a vision of courage, uh, an image that says to those who are following Jesus, keep on following, stay true to the faith. When your faith is questioned, when your faith is hard to live out, when your faith is challenged even to the point of challenging your life and perhaps leading to your death. This is the picture. This is who you are. Whether you're alive 
now in the first century or maybe in today's century? Where are you called and challenged to continue to serve faithfully, victoriously, triumphantly, even though everything is falling apart around you, even though you yourself may be killed? Remember, you will join that church triumphant one day where everything is perfection and bliss, where God has brought everything to its appointed end, its purpose in history, which is a good purpose, a holy purpose, the purpose purpose of, of expressing the joy and the love of a living and powerful God. That's who we follow. That's the message we take from Revelation today. I'll see you again, the Lord willing. God bless.